One, The Republic. Written and narrated by Christopher Vale. Theme song, Lionheart, by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 4. All Men Have This Corruption Captain John Smith's small fleet had finished exploring the coast of Massachusetts and he was set to return to England to begin the preparatory work necessary to establish a New England colony. One of his associates, a Captain Thomas Hunt, remained behind with a ship, ostensibly to trade with the natives for beaver pelts. After Smith left, Hunt invited 24 Indians of the Nauset and Patuxet tribes onto his ship to barter. Along with them was a brave named Tisquantum, but history would remember him as Squanto. Instead of trading with the Indians, Hunt and his men captured them and locked them below the deck of the ship. They then set sail, but not for England. Instead, they sailed for Spain to sell their new captives as slaves. When word reached John Smith of what Hunt had done, he was furious and called Hunt's actions dishonest and inhumane. Not only did Smith realize this would likely destroy his plans to open up trade with the Massachusetts natives for valuable beaver pelts, but he no doubt remembered how well he had been cared for by Pocahontas in Virginia. Once in Spain, Hunt sold his captives, but before Squanto had been sold, Some local friars discovered what was happening and rescued him from the Englishmen. The friars realized that the best way to return Squanto to his native lands in New England would be on an English ship. They assisted Squanto in finding passage to London, and there he met a man named John Slaney. Slaney had heard stories of an Indian from the Americas recently arrived in London. In fact, some historians believe that Squanto had likely become somewhat of a celebrity in London, much as Pocahontas had. In any event, Slaney was the treasurer for the Newfoundland Company, which was building an English colony at Cuppers Cove on Newfoundland. He hired Squanto as an interpreter and expert on the natural resources of North America. Slaney taught Squanto English and then sent him off to Newfoundland. While working in Newfoundland, Squanto met Captain Thomas Dermer, who had formerly commanded a ship under John Smith. Dermer was now working for the New England Company, a group of investors attempting to trade with the Massachusetts Indians. He was delighted to meet Squanto and hoped the Indian could make the peace between the English traders and his people in the wake of the Hunt kidnappings. 
1619, five years after being taken by Thomas Hunt, and just one year before the Mayflower arrived in Cape Cod, Dermer returned Squanto to his home. Unfortunately, they arrived to find Squanto's Patuxet village had been completely wiped out by the plague. Squanto went in search of other friendly tribes, and he found Massasoit, the sachem of the Wapanag Confederation, of which the Patuxet had belonged. The term sachem was the local word for what we would call a chief. Sachem Massasoit welcomed Squanto to live among his people. Captain Dermer, discouraged that Squanto's Patuxet tribe no longer existed, set out to find the Nauset to attempt to smooth over relations with them. Unfortunately for Dermer, the Nauset were not in a forgiving mood and quickly captured the English captain. Word soon reached Squanto that his friend Dermer was being held as a prisoner and he set out to the Cape to negotiate for the captain's release. The Nauset agreed to release Dermer after Squanto's testimony on the Englishman's behalf. Leaving Squanto with Massasoit, Dermer left the area sailing to Martha's Vineyards where he was once again attacked by natives. Dermer was badly injured and the ship fled, sailing south to Jamestown. Sadly, Dermer died from his wounds soon after reaching the Virginia colony. In March of 1621, Squanto was in his village when Somerset found him. Somerset told Squanto about a group of Englishmen who'd arrived from London and were building a village. Squanto was excited. He understood the benefits that he and Massasoit could gain by forming an alliance with the white men. He quickly rushed off to inform the sachem. Squanto found Massasoit and told him the news Somerset had brought. Massasoit was intrigued by Squanto's suggestion to ally the tribe with the newcomers. He also hoped to discover the Englishman's plans and agreed to accompany Squanto to the Pilgrim's Colony at New Plymouth. On March 22nd, Squanto, Massasoit, and several warriors arrived at the Pilgrim's settlement. The Pilgrims were finally emerging from their first winter, a terrible time that had taken the lives of half the colony. Squanto made contact first, while Massasoit remained on the other side of Town Brook. The Pilgrims were excited to discover that Squanto's English was considerably better than Somerset's. When the Indian explained that he had lived with John Slaney, a person well known to many of the colonists, they trusted him immediately. Squanto informed the Pilgrims that he had brought along Massasoit, leader of the local tribe. Edward Winslow accompanied Squanto across Town Brook to meet Massasoit, and after some preliminary negotiations, the sachem, Squanto, and an honor guard crossed over to the settlement to meet with Governor John Carver. Winslow remained on the far side of the brook to act as a hostage in case the pilgrims attempted to double-cross Massasoit. Governor Carver immediately welcomed the natives to the colony and offered Massasoit food and drink to include English liquor. The two men sat down to negotiate a treaty, with Squanto acting as interpreter. One of the primary agreements they reached was a military alliance, with the pilgrims agreeing to help Massasoit fight his enemies, thus accomplishing Massasoit's primary goal. After the treaty was concluded, Massasoit returned to his tribe. Soon, however, members of the tribe came bearing food for trade. This was a welcome relief to the pilgrims, who were still several months away from their first harvest 
and had exhausted most of their supplies during the winter. Squanto began to teach them how to plant the way the native tribes did, with corn to be planted in small mounds along with beans and squash and fertilized with fish. Thus, in March, things began to look up for the pilgrims. Sadly, 13 people still died that month, including Edward Winslow's wife, Elizabeth. Winslow would remarry Susanna White just over a month later. The next month, even more tragedy struck the colony as Governor Carver died. He had been working in the fields but became very sick and lost his senses, including his ability to speak. A few days later, he died. Five or six weeks after that, Carver's wife joined him in heaven. William Bradford was elected to replace Carver as governor of the colony. Bradford had been among some of the earliest religious refugees to the Netherlands, moving there in 1608 when he was just 18 years old. He worked what jobs he could find until 1611 when he set up a weaver's shop in Leiden. Always a hard worker and an honest businessman, Bradford's business flourished. Two years later, he married Dorothy May, but the young couple did not have their first child until 1617. Bradford and Dorothy joined the pilgrims in their journey to America, but left their three-year-old son John behind with her parents in Amsterdam because he was too frail to make the journey. Bradford quickly established himself as one of the more dependable men of the colony and joined the early explorers of the new lands. His wife died while he was out on one such exploration, falling overboard from the Mayflower and drowning. One of Bradford's chief concerns after taking over leadership of Plymouth was the accumulation of too much debt from the friendly natives. Massasoit's people continuously came to the settlement to trade food, and Bradford feared the colony would be unable to repay them at harvest time. Thus, he sent Winslow to meet with Massasoit and Squanto to ask the sachem to limit the number of his people coming and bringing food to the English. Winslow brought another request as well. He asked Massasoit to get word to the people of Cape Cod that the pilgrims intended to repay the corn and copper kettle which they had taken upon their first landing. Massasoit was happy to help his new friends on both accounts. Then he made a request of his own. Squanto explained that the tribe was eager to see a demonstration of English firepower. Winslow and his men were happy to wow the Indians with their firing skills. While Winslow was impressing Massasoit and his people with English firepower, an adventurous teenager named John Billington wandered away from the colony on his own to explore the surrounding area. Unfortunately, the young man wandered too far and got lost. He survived by eating wild berries until he eventually came upon some natives. They sought to return young Billington to his own people and sent him to one of the Cape Cod tribes. It turned out to be the same tribe from whom the pilgrims had taken the corn and copper kettle. Word of young Billington's whereabouts soon reached the pilgrims through Massasoit and an expedition was launched to recover him. When the pilgrims arrived at Cape Cod, they were met by 100 warriors. The braves were very suspicious, not only because the pilgrims had stolen their corn, but because these were the same natives who had been terrorized by Thomas Hunt. The tribe's chief, Aspinet, 
approached the small group of pilgrim men with John Billington and 50 unarmed warriors. Another 50 armed warriors held back, waiting to see if there would be trouble. The pilgrims thanked the chief for taking care of Billington and gave him some English knives. Further, they promised to repay the corn once the harvest came in. Aspinet accepted the knives and the pilgrims promised to repay him for the corn. He returned John Billington to them, but also gave them some unsettling news. Aspinet informed the pilgrims that Massasoit's territory had been conquered by an Indian named Corbitant. The pilgrims thanked the chief and hurried back to New Plymouth. When they returned to the colony, they discovered that their Indian friend Habamak had arrived just before they did. Habamak not only confirmed the rumor about Corbitant taking over much of Massasoit's territory, but also informed them that Corbitant had kidnapped Squanto. Habamak himself had barely escaped, fleeing to New Plymouth for help. When asked why Corbitant had kidnapped him and Squanto, Habamak replied that it was because they were friendly with the Englishmen. The pilgrims were eager to help their friends, and on August 14, 1621, Miles Standish led a group of 14 men back with Habamak to rescue Squanto. Habamak led them through pouring rain to Corbitant's house, but got lost a few times along the way due to poor visibility. When they eventually reached the house, Standish and his men surrounded it, while he and a few others burst through the door, firing a gun and terrifying those inside. Once inside, they found men, women, and children, but no Squanto or Corbitant. Three Indian warriors attempted to escape, but were shot or stabbed outside of the house. Fortunately, none were fatally wounded. Frustrated that Squanto was not there, Habamak climbed onto the top of the roof of the house and began to cry out for him. Soon, Squanto arrived, and Habamak and the pilgrims were relieved to find their friend alive. They were also happy to discover that the rumors of Corbitant's victories over Massasoit had been greatly exaggerated. The adventure gave the pilgrims a reputation among the tribes of being very powerful warriors. It also put the surrounding tribes on notice that Squanto and his friends were under the pilgrims' protection. As a result, Corbitant and several other chiefs from as far away as Martha's Vineyard signed a treaty in New Plymouth with the pilgrims, even swearing allegiance to King James. With peace made with the natives, the pilgrims could focus all of their efforts constructing houses and planting crops. With a great deal of fish to be caught and waterfowl to be shot, the pilgrims ate well enough during the summer, but they looked forward to their first harvest that autumn. As summer turned to fall, the pilgrims began to hunt waterfowl, wild turkey, and deer. They also began to gather up their first small harvest, which included 20 acres of corn and 6 acres of peas and barley. As was English custom, they decided to celebrate their first harvest, and four men were sent out to kill fowl, shooting enough for one day to feed the settlement for a week. The 53 surviving pilgrims invited Massasoit and his tribe to join in their festivities and enjoy the harvest. About 90 Indians made the journey to New Plymouth for what would later become known as the First Thanksgiving. The celebration lasted three days, with the pilgrims adding wild turkey to the waterfowl and the natives supplying five deer. They feasted and played games, including firing their guns, which would certainly have impressed the natives. The pilgrims were getting along well with the local tribes, and it certainly helped that Squanto had lived in London and could speak English. It also 
did not hurt that the Indians feared the white men's guns and also correctly associated them with plagues, unintentionally brought with European trading ships that had devastated entire tribes, including Squanto's. Soon, however, Squanto began to take advantage of his close position with the pilgrims and his fellow Indians' fear of them for personal gain. Squanto made the other Indian tribes pay him tribute for protection, threatening to have the pilgrims unleash the plague if they refused. Meanwhile, he kept the pilgrims scared of the natives by feeding them stories of conspiracy of the Indian tribes uniting to attack them. The pilgrims' other Indian friend, Habamak, told Governor Bradford that he had heard rumors from the other natives that Squanto was being dishonest. Bradford did not want to believe this, however, and decided to disregard the rumors. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War, but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again, and now, back to Home of the Brave. In April of 1622, the Pilgrims sent their shallop with ten men, along with Squanto and Habamack, to trade with the Massachusetts tribe. The sailboat had not been gone long before a relative of Squanto's rushed into the settlement. He appeared scared and kept looking over his shoulder as if someone were chasing him. This Indian told Bradford that Corbitant and Massasoit had joined forces to attack Plymouth. They were 15 miles away, waiting for Standish and the others aboard the shallop to leave before they attacked. The pilgrims fired a shot into the air to alert Standish, and the shallop soon returned. All of the men quickly took up arms and prepared for an assault. Habamack scoffed at the idea that Massasoit would attack the pilgrims, insisting that Squanto's relation was lying. Nevertheless, the pilgrims remained on watch throughout the night. Bradford hoped that Habamack was right. He wanted to maintain the peace with the Indians, especially Massasoit, he said, because his love more exceeded toward him than any. Bradford asked Habamack to send his wife to Massasoit's village to determine if the story was true or not. When she arrived, she did not find any warriors preparing for battle. She sought out Massasoit and told him what had happened. The sachem was furious and hurried to Plymouth to clear his name. When Massasoit and his men arrived at the colony, they assured Bradford that Squanto had deceived him and demanded that pilgrims hand the liar over to Massasoit to be executed. The governor had to admit Squanto's guilt, but did not want to see his friend killed. He asked Massasoit to change his mind, pointing out that Squanto was too valuable to both of them as an interpreter. Massasoit refused to budge on the issue, and kept insisting that Bradford give Squanto to him. 
he informed the governor that it would be a violation of their treaty for Bradford to refuse to turn over the traitor. Massasoit sought to keep on the Pilgrims' good side, however, and offered to give the Pilgrims several highly valuable beaver skins in exchange for Squanto. Bradford responded that he would not sell a man's life for a price. In his defense, Squanto blamed Habamack for the deception, but agreed that he would go peacefully if Bradford decided to hand him over. Bradford had no desire to do so. Not only did he personally like Squanto, but the Indian was also extremely helpful as an interpreter and advisor about the natives. However, Bradford realized that he had to turn Squanto over or it would undo all the goodwill the pilgrims had built up with Massasoit's tribe. So, with a heavy heart, the governor eventually agreed to do so. Just as he was about to give Squanto to Massasoit, a cry went out that a boat had been spotted sailing in front of the town before disappearing behind a headland. The colony had heard rumors of French activity, and Bradford became suddenly paranoid. Could this be a French vessel? Was Massasoit really in league with France? Were they combining forces to attack Plymouth? Bradford refused to hand Squanto over until the identity of the boat could be determined. Massasoit and his men left angrily. The boat turned out to be a shallop from the English ship Sparrow, bringing mail and seven new passengers to the colony. To the pilgrims' dismay, however, they did not bring any additional provisions and would simply help exhaust the settlement's already dwindling supply. These new arrivals were an advanced team sent by Thomas Weston to set up a new colony. Even though in the end the ship turned out to be friendly, it gave Squanto a reprieve from death. Sadly, the reprieve did not last long. Several months later, in November of 1622, Squanto accompanied Bradford to the south side of Cape Cod to trade for corn seed. A storm forced the boat ashore. Soon after making landfall, Squanto's nose began to bleed. He informed Bradford that this was a sign among his people that death was coming. He asked Bradford to pray for him so that he could go and live in heaven with the pilgrim's god. Squanto died a few days later. This came at a terrible time as Thomas Weston's second group of colonists had formed a settlement known as the Wessagusset Colony. Unlike the Pilgrim's Colony, whose members primarily came to the New World for religious reasons, the Wessagusset colonists came purely for profit. Thus, only able-bodied men were sent to the colony. The problem, however, was that none of the men had any experience in colonial life. Originally, the new colonists had assisted the Pilgrims with their harvest, but were soon accused of stealing and chased out of New Plymouth. Once they were established in their own settlement, a group of Indians visited New Plymouth, angrily accusing the new colony of stealing from them as well. Unfortunately, there was little the pilgrims could do. Since Weston had not sent additional supplies, and the starving continued, it eventually became clear that the pilgrims needed to make some adjustments if anyone was going to survive. While their compact had required all property to be put into a community store to be used by everyone, they eventually figured out that this was preventing men from working. After all, as Bradford noted, the fit and able young men saw little incentive to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. Bradford called this men's corruption, but warned that none should object to it because all men have this corruption in them. The pilgrims having learned, as the settlers at Jamestown had, 
that what we call socialism today is simply a recipe for starvation gave each man responsibility for his own property independence. As winter wore on and their supplies dwindled, the West Augusta colony was forced to trade with the Massachusetts Indians for food. They had little to barter with, and some were forced to become servants, working for the Indians in exchange for food. Others did not want to work for their food, and turned to theft. Those caught were placed in irons by the colony, or worse. Once a colonist was accused of stealing from the Indians, and fearful that relations would deteriorate, the other colonists hanged him in front of the tribe. Meanwhile, in Plymouth, Massasoit and Habamack warned the pilgrims that several of the Massachusetts tribes were organizing against the English at Plymouth and West Augusset. Massasoit realized that the pilgrims had a policy of not attacking natives until they themselves had been attacked. But, he argued, that any delay would mean that the Wessagusset colony would be slaughtered. Thus, Massasoit advised the pilgrims that they should attack the Massachusetts tribes before the tribes attacked them. As the pilgrims determined what to do, one of the Wessagusset colonists fled to Plymouth and told the pilgrims that Wessagusset was under siege and begged them to come to the colony's relief. He explained that the colonists were starving and freezing having traded their clothes to the Indians for food. He also told them that a native squaw had warned him that the Indians were about to attack. Lending credence to his story, the pilgrims found a Massachusetts warrior had followed him. Feeling they had no other choice, the pilgrims sent Miles Standish with eight men for a preemptive strike against the Massachusetts Indians. Standish limited the number of men to eight because he realized that what they were about to do was a dirty business, and he did not want to taint the consciences of too many of the men. In fact, Standish had received orders to return with the sachem's head so as to warn the other tribes not to attack the English. Standish led his men to Wessagusset, arriving on March 26, 1623. Several natives were lured inside of a house to negotiate with promises of a feast. The accounts differ on what exactly happened, but there was a fight, ending with the death of three Indians, including the Sachem. Some of the stories claim that Standish killed the Sachem with the man's own knife. Following the battle, the Wessagusset colony dissolved. Some of the survivors returned to England, but others went north to Maine. A few remained behind and joined the colonists in New Plymouth. Most of the men who went to Maine starved to death. Unfortunately, relations between the Plymouth colonists and many of the local tribes was severely damaged by the battle. It also further affected colonists' efforts at peace with the natives. This, however, did not dissuade the English from continuing to settle in the Massachusetts area. By 1629, the Massachusetts Bay Company had obtained a royal charter and was making much more ambitious plans for the colonization of New England. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. <laughs>